Hey guys, how's it going out there? Thanks for tuning in to the YFYI podcast. I'm excited for today's episode. This is part five of our Starbucks story that was recorded live on Storytime. Um, this is going to conclude our Starbucks study for now, and we're going to find out what the next steps were that Howard takes and starting his own company after he quits, leaves Starbucks, only to come back and buy Starbucks. So it's a pretty um, interesting plot twist, and he has some pretty um, unlikely investors that show up at the very beginning of his new venture. So all that and more on this episode of Storytime. Hope you guys are ready. Uh, This is gonna be a good one, and can't wait to get your feedback. So now let's move on to the episode. Right. Good morning. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? We are now live, live, live. We're live all the way live. Live on Facebook. Live on Twitter. Got the Twitter broadcast going. Hopefully everyone's doing well this morning. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being here. Just trying to get the trying to get the uh, the Instagram live I think Instagram if I were to if I were if I were in charge if I were to recommend anything I would say Instagram can we fix somehow can we fix the uh, green screen effect because you can't do I mean you can do live you have a green screen you can start it but then once you start it <clears throat> the green screen goes away so what's up with that Try it again. I'll try it one more time. Let's see what happens here. All right. So good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? We're now on day five, part five of story time for this week. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being here. Hopefully you guys are having a good week. Hopefully things are going well. Hopefully things are uh, things are happening the way that you envision them to happen this week. Thanks for being back with me for another story time as we get going this morning. It is Friday, May 29th. I'm your host, Sonny D, in the place to be. And we're going to have some fun today as we're kind of coming in for a landing. Coming in for a landing right now. What's up, Elena? How you doing? Coming in for a landing And that landing is going to be on the Starbucks platform as they're ready to accelerate and take off like a rocket. So we've been building up, you know, throughout the week. I've been coming to you guys every single day and we've been studying the Starbucks story, the great Starbucks coffee company and their story. And hold on a second. Got to get a couple of things. And as we've been learning, you know, about Howard Schultz, for some of you guys, this may be your first introduction to Howard Schultz. Maybe you just met him via via Instagram. Maybe you just met him via Storytime. Maybe the name Howard Schultz before this week didn't mean anything to you. Um, but hopefully throughout the week, I've been able to successfully uh, paint a picture for you of uh, the incredible entrepreneur, the incredible um, individual that he is, you know, the the risk taker, um, the rebel, the visionary um, that he is. And we've been 
You know, we've been going through pour your heart into it. So pour your heart into it. How Starbucks built a company one cup at a time, which is by Howard Schultz, um, which takes us from the origin story or through the origin story up until their public years, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. So being a private company is one thing. Private company like my companies are private, meaning you can't go on the stock market or go on you know, the Cash App or Robinhood or any of the E-Trade and buy a share on the open public market. You can't buy stock in it. Now, on the public market, on the private side, yes, and I've sold you know, uh, shares of my companies on the private side. So you can buy shares of private companies, you just have to either, you know, you have to know the owner, you have to know somebody that's in the company that has shares that's willing to sell them to you. Um, so you can still buy shares of pretty much any company out there, provided they're, you know, they're a corporation that was formed and they have shares. So there's that private side. Now the benefits, there's pros and cons to everything, right? So the benefits of being a private company, which Starbucks was um, through a number of years. I mean, the company was started in 1970. You know, Howard, he didn't roll up in there until the 80s. Um, but, you know, being a, a private company from 19, really 87, uh, when Howard kind of starts shaking things up, which we're going to talk a little bit about what happens uh, when Howard, you know, leaves Starbucks, right? He left Starbucks only to take over Starbucks. So that, how do you do that? And so they were private, you know, through uh, 1992, early 90s, and then they went public. So the pros of private, meaning you don't have a board of people over you. You don't have all these different, you know, um, the board of directors and the, and the shareholders that put pressure on you. Because a lot of times what happens with that pressure, you do things that you wouldn't have done. Like you kind of deviate and you move away from your mission, your initial mission that you had, You'll move away from that and you'll start doing things that you would have never done. You'll start doing things, you know, to please the shareholders. Uh, sometimes that term is called um, um, kowtowing, you know, kind of like, yes, 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 I'll do this, I'll do that. Oh, you think, you know, and then all of a sudden Starbucks could have turned into something totally not. So during those private years, you have the, you know, the control and the autonomy to make decisions if you're the owner of what you think is gonna be best for the company, what you think is gonna help take the company to the next level. So those are some of the pros of being private. Now the pros of being public is once you go public and you're trading on the open market, that means you know millions and you know millions, potentially billions of people can now buy shares of your company, meaning all this money starts coming into your company and you can get flushed with cash so you have a lot more money to be able to do things and grow and scale up and, and become huge. So what happens then is you are now listed on a stock exchange and money's coming in. So now I'll give you some examples where companies do, most every company pretty much will start as a private company, but when they go public and they do the initial public offering, which is called an IPO, it's a big day in a company's you know history because that's when they're going to actually make money potentially and get paid. So Starbucks for example, you know Starbucks is started in 92, so from or I'm sorry from 1970 until the 80s Howard comes into play. Um Howard takes them through, you know, really the 80s into the 90s 
and then boom, they become public, all this money comes in and that's when the explosive growth starts to happen. Um, and that's when shareholders, a lot of times, you know, maybe the founders or those early few employees, those very first people that join the company, they then decide that they are ready to get off the bus and they're ready to cash out. Usually there's a period of time where you can't just sell your shares because you want to, you know, for some people they may have started if they're like employee number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, the first maybe 50 people and the company didn't have cash because it was a new company strapped for cash like most new companies then they'll pay their employees with maybe some cash because you got to live um, but then they'll also pay them in a portion of stock so say you were going to make you know fifty thousand dollars a year <clears throat> but the company didn't have fifty thousand to really pay you um, a year they could pay you even half they might pay you twenty five thousand if you can live off of that come to an agreement agreement Yep, I can make that work. And then the other $25,000, we are gonna pay you in stock. So that might be for year one, year two, year three, year four. And it might be five, 10 years before you know you actually get up to the 50,000. So they may keep paying you in stock. So now you're sitting around, you got all this stock. Well then, all of a sudden, there's a little rumbling going on. The company's talking about going public. So what that means, is now you may have a lot of restrictions with what you can do with your private stock. Maybe you can sell them back to the company only. Uh, maybe you can sell them within the company to other you know, st uh, employees that are, are there. Maybe there's a period of time you can't do anything except just hold them. It's like a lockup period. And you have to hold them for so many years before you can, you know, you have investing and you have divesting. Before you can divest, meaning before you can start selling some of these um, shares back to the company or to anyone. Uh, maybe there's other rules. There's all kinds of rules there could be. So here's the cool thing, right? Now you're sitting around, right? You've been you've been making you know fifty thousand dollars, maybe twenty five in cash, twenty five in stock for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, and then the company is like, we're gonna go public. When you hear that we're gonna go public, what that looks like for you immediately that turns into a payday, because when they go public, that means that yes, there might be still a period of time, maybe for the first six months, you're not allowed to sell your shares on the open market, but when the company goes public, that means you can eventually, you're gonna be able to sell those shares to anyone. You'll be able to put them on, you know, on the open market because you, are, you own them, right? And now that company is listed and it's gonna every single day, you know, Monday through Friday when the markets are open, the values are gonna go up and down on those stocks, but you can cash out. So when that happens, if you've been there for a while, maybe you're ready to cash out. Maybe you want to buy a, a you know a Lamborghini, or depending on how big the IPO is, depending on how much money it's it's raising on that initial public offering that one day when they go ding ding ding, it's now available. It's on the public market. That's a huge day. I think uh, I don't know the the stats for Starbucks when they went public because that was a long time ago, but I know like a more recent big big company, Facebook. Right, they were, you know, I think started in early 2000s. They were probably about you know, 10 years or so in the game before they went public. But that was like one of the biggest days um, in their history and in, in, in the business world because everyone's like, oh my God, they're going to go public. Like, what's how much is it going to be worth? Um, so there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to set that initial public offering price. But when that thing hit, 
and Facebook became a publicly traded company, I forget how many millionaires, I know it was a few hundred, I wanna say millionaires got created instantly because all that stock that they had, those early employees were being, being paid part cash and part stock, now that stock really, the value just skyrocketed. Because once it goes on the market, then the public really decides. So a lot of people are starting to buy and people line up. There's like pre-orders, it's like a big deal. There's pre-orders, people are waiting and waiting and waiting. And I remember the day, like I watched it like a sporting event. I was watching it on TV when Facebook was going public because it was, it was like exciting, like this is gonna be huge. Um, and then the company you know, gets what's called a, a valuation. Based on the demand, based on how many people want to buy the stock, based on how much stock is sold on that first day, that company can go up in value tremendously, but it also can come down. You know, and so, I mean, this is stuff that I would definitely advise um, everyone watching, listening, no matter where you're at, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you're watching or listening, um, learn a little bit more about this. One of the great ways to learn about it is you know download any there's tons of different apps that you can um, buy stocks with nowadays i mean i use Robinhood. i use the Robinhood app i use um the cash app you can buy stocks with um there's a lot of and you can and you don't have to buy them you don't have to buy stocks but you could just learn you could watch you could um you know just kind of you know monitor different companies just like like on social media you can follow companies on like the cash app or on the Robinhood app and watch the valuations going up and down and and learn about it. You got to learn about it. You know, and and I I went to like a you know, a, a one or two day like stock trading uh class like 10 years ago and it was just like I didn't really know I was it was a foreign language to me. Um but over time I've continued to kind of watch and learn and it's it's interesting to me. So you kind of find out about how these things work. Um, but when you take your company, which Starbucks did, from private to public, um, that's usually where there's a lot of explosive growth. Um, we've seen companies like, you know, tank, you know, go down and, and hit, essentially hit rock bottom over time. We've seen companies go up like a rocket. Um, there's all different things that happen when, you're, when your company goes from being private, privately held, you know, meaning there's there's the owners, there's the founders, to being uh, publicly held. There's a lot of um, a lot of you know drama that happens, but that's also when some of the owners and some of those early people cash out. And so, like the Facebook example, that was a huge one. Um, all the tech companies because they raise so much money and they're kind of mysterious, like how how they're valued and how they're like worth what they're worth. All that kind of is always built up around you know, some of these technology companies when they go public. Like, uh, you know, but nowadays, like back in the day, I mean, when Starbucks went public, um, like Amazon, you know, we're talking in the 90s, there may not have been as much fanfare. I'm sure there was. I mean, I didn't know what was, I wasn't even in business then. Um, so there's, um, there's definitely a lot of hype around some of these because they're valued so much. And it's like, well, how is this company worth so much? And they raise a lot of money and they get a lot of attention. Um, and then so people are waiting and there's always a lot of speculators that don't know what they're doing. They're just like, oh, you know, Snapchat is going to be, you know, available to buy stock and they'll buy it and they'll lose money initially. 
because that initial day, you know, there'll be a pop. They call it the you know the day one pop. Price shoots up, they make some money, but then it it drops down and it settles out. And investing is always a long term game, um, but you have to kind of you know you have to learn about it. So those are some apps and resources and things to you know to think about as you're you know navigating your business uh, life, your new business life, your young business life, you know, no matter how old you are, if you're just getting started in business, you're, you, it's like you're a baby in business. And so Starbucks is going to be going public here shortly. Um, where we left off yesterday was uh, where Howard was, you know, leaving the company, which was kind of crazy, you know, to think about, you know, he, he does all these things to be a part of this company and then he quits because he wants to try this idea that he has in his head of creating these espresso coffee bars. And the owners of Starbucks at the time, they just wanna bag up coffee and sell it to people. Sell beans, they don't wanna set up a bar and start serving beverages. They don't wanna get in the beverage service. They don't wanna get in the, essentially the, uh, the restaurant business. They don't want any part of that. They're like, no, we wanna bag up you know, amazing coffee, sell it to people like we've been doing one location, two location, three location, four. Um, and that's what we want to do. But Howard's like, we could do these espresso bars. We could still bag the coffee. He's not saying like, let's, let's stop doing that. He's saying we can still bag the coffee and sell it, but we could also show people how to enjoy coffee, set up these espresso bars and expand this operation all over the country and maybe even beyond. So he's got this big vision and the other owners are not trying to hear it. So what does Howard do? He does what any visionary would do in that situation, what any uh, little crazy person would do, which you gotta be a little crazy to pull off big things. You gotta be a little bit crazy um, to pull off anything that's, um, you know, if you're trying to build something or trying to do something or trying to, you know, as Steve Jobs would say, dent the universe, you gotta be a little crazy. And so he does what any crazy visionary would do. He's like, you know what? I quit. <laughs> I'm leaving. I'm gonna go do this espresso bar thing. Love you guys, but gotta leave you guys. And so he rolls out and that's kind of where we left off. But we all know like that's not the end because he became the chairman CEO and took Starbucks um, on a ride. So what happens next? So that's what we're going to get into um, in these coming pages. And as has been the tradition throughout this uh, week, I've been drinking a cafe latte every morning for story time. Made by Starbucks coffee, brewed by Sunny, and my hands brewing uh, the coffee. But uh, that's been my that's been my ride or die this week. <clears throat> So Howard knows this is that was his chance, and he's gotta he's gotta kind of leave, and he's gotta go do this thing, this coffee bar thing. And so let's jump back into the story, um, and and <clears throat> see what's going on next. So we've got a, a quote here. This is from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in 1849. It says, "We judge ourselves by what we feel capable of doing, while others." judge us by what we have already done that's that's a mind game right there we judge ourselves by we judge ourselves by what we feel capable of doing 
Like if I think I can do something, right? Uh, other people might not. Other people are not going to believe sometimes in you the way that you might believe in you. Now that can mess with you because if other people don't believe in you, like you believe in you and you start believing how in them, right? You start believing in them, in their belief in you, then, you know, self-esteem could come down, right? Your self-confidence can come down. And because of the naysayers, um, you may never try. You may never go for it. You may never try to do that thing. Um, so naysayers and this, you know, heading on this chapter here, naysayers never built a great enterprise. And so that's something to remember. Naysayers never built a great enterprise. So here we go. So it's a classic American tale. Every entrepreneur's dream to start with a great idea, attract some investors, and build a business that is profitable and sustainable. Yes, it is. <laughs> Trouble is, you usually have to start as the underdog. If you want to know how underdogs feel, try to raise money for a new enterprise. People will shut you out. They'll regard you with suspicion. They'll undermine your self-confidence. They'll offer you every reason imaginable why your idea simply won't work. Being an underdog has a flip side though, for facing such adversity can be invigorating. In my case, part of me relished the fact that so many people said my plan couldn't be done. No matter how many times people put me down, I believed strongly that I could pull it off. I was so confident of winning that I enjoyed being in a position where people's expectations were so low that I knew I could beat them. Nobody ever accomplished anything by believing the naysayers, and few have done so by sticking to proven ideas in proven fields. And it's those who follow the road less traveled who create new industries, invent new products, build long-lasting enterprises, and inspire those around them to push their abilities to the highest levels of achievement. If you stop being the scrappy underdog fighting against the odds, you risk the worst fate of all, mediocrity. And so, you know, that's that goes for everybody doing every, anything, doing everything. You know, if you're listening to those naysayers and you're kind of like, yeah, you know, I don't think I'm going to make it because uh, they don't think I can do it. And then you start letting those little doubts creep into your head like, well, you know, what if they're right? Right. And you start thinking like that. You start wondering, like, what if they're right? And if once that happens, once that starts creeping into your head, it's over, my friends. It is because, I mean, it takes a lot to get that out. And I mean, you could get it out. So how do you arm yourself? Um, you have to really be your number one believer. You've got to be your, the person that believes the most in you out of anybody. I don't care about you know, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your kid, whoever. If you're not your number one believer um, in you, then you already are behind. You've already, you know, you're already halfway to losing because most people aren't, especially if you come to them with some crazy idea. I remember when I was first starting the Salon 1.0 and my plan, you know, and this is almost 11 years ago, my plan was um, to start a salon and really just focus on hiring brand new people right out of school. And so many people were like, well, how the hell is that going to work? Because they have zero clientele, they've got no experience, you've got to, you know, 
It's going to take forever to try to train them. They're not going to be bringing in any money. How are you going to be able to do all that and you know have a salon? I'm like, I don't know. Honestly, I didn't know. And that was okay at the time because I believed I would be able to figure it out. And that's like kind of the conviction that you have to have and everybody that I brought the idea to and I'm talking about experienced salon owners I'm talking about experienced business owners I'm talking about experienced in life people you know people always ask me those same things and they were just that was logical yeah like you know how are you gonna afford that because if you have to do all the hair pay all the bills pay all the people and train all the people how, how are you gonna pull that off like it, it doesn't make any sense Right, it shouldn't work. It shouldn't you know? You shouldn't. It shouldn't work. Um, and I'm still figuring it out now. You know, with 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 the the four salons that um, that we have, we're still figuring it out every day. Um, but the naysayers never did anything great. And your other option is yeah, be mediocre. Right, that's your other option. Um, so <clears throat> that's the mindset, and that's where um, Howard is at in his mind. So let's keep moving here. So no. In Italian doesn't sound as bad. Jerry Baldwin, right? Jerry, the owner, of Starbucks, one of the owners, surprised me. And he says, when I was drawing up the documents to form my new company and planning how to approach investors to raise money for it, he called me into his office and offered to invest $150,000 of Starbucks money into my coffee bar enterprise. This isn't a business we want to go into ourselves, he explained, but we'll support you. That was huge. That's a plot twist right there. So he's quitting this company, Starbucks, which he's super passionate about. He had a great relationship with Jerry too. And Jerry's like, you know what? We don't want a part of it, but we'll support you. So that, my friends, is what you called... um, a huge plot twist, almost like a little bit of fate, destinies right there. So with those words, ironically, Starbucks became my first investor, committing a huge sum of money for a company so deeply in debt. Jerry also agreed to serve as a director and Gordon promised to be a part-time consultant for six months. That stamp of approval eased my transition enormously. Perhaps Jerry hoped to prevent me from becoming a competitor, or perhaps he wanted to ensure that I would use Starbucks coffee, although it would have been my first choice anyway. It was clear to me, though, that Jerry also simply wanted to be supportive, and I was grateful. Gordon was as pumped up about the venture as I was, and he put his creative mind to work, helping refine my idea. This is not about the ordinary, Gordon told me. You need to elevate the expectation of the customers. Everything about the new store, the name, the setting, the presentation, the care taken to create the coffee, everything should lead the customer to expect something better. It was Gordon who proposed that I should call the company Il Giornale. While best known as the name of the largest newspaper in Italy, Giornale also has the more basic meaning of daily. You've got your daily paper, your daily pastry, your daily cup of coffee. If we serve great coffee with Italian elegance and style, we hoped people would come back daily. With Jerry and Gordon's support, I thought naively I could attract all the investment funds I needed within six months. There's nothing sweeter to a freshly minted entrepreneur than the taste of success after raising that initial dollar of investment. But 
when no when the first no comes it's like a slap in the face i had to experience that in of all places italy in december just as i left starbucks gordon and i set off on an adventure flying to italy to research coffee bars over the previous three years i had grown fond of him and enjoyed his eclecticism I expected to come back with $1 million in investment financing. Our big prospect was Faima, a producer of espresso machines in Milan. I had pitched my idea by phone to them and they had sounded very interested. On our first full day in Milan, I made my initial presentation and I was proud of it. I explained to them how we would recreate the Italian espresso bar experience in the United States, eventually expanding to 50 stores. I spoke as eloquently as I could about the potential scope of the opportunity and stressed the appeal of Italian-style coffee, which was little known in America. For a company that sold commercial espresso machines, I figured the venture would appear an obvious winner. But after a surprisingly short discussion, they turned us down. Americans, they insisted, could never enjoy espresso the way Italians do. So here he is, he's over in Italy, he's in Milan, he's like, yeah, this is gonna be great, they're gonna, they're gonna love this idea, they're definitely gonna throw money at us, we're gonna be rolling in it. And they're like, yeah, not so much. Uh, we're not really buying it. Um, and so I know if you guys are on Instagram, you can't see this, maybe I'll show it to you in a second, but if you're on Facebook, um, this beautiful image that I have going on behind me um, today, is actually the Starbucks Reserve, which is their new um, super high-end um, store layout, store format, or brand of Starbucks that they um, are starting to open. There's some of them around the world they've got, um, but it's called Starbucks Reserve, and that one behind me is actually the one in Milan. That's the Starbucks Reserve in Milan. So you can see, I mean, it looks pretty fancy, but you can see right you know, over here it has the little Starbucks um, and then it's called the reserve. So they started that. It was a concept, you know, that they came up with several years ago. Let's see. I can show it to you guys that are on on the uh, Instagram here in a second. But that one's in Milan, so I wanted to use that today as a little backdrop. So let's go here. Let's see, uh, I think because the green screen's on, you might not be able to see it. I don't know if I can turn this around. Oh, no, you're only gonna see the green screen, sorry. <laughs> if you're on Facebook, you can see it, and you guys can check it out on Facebook, but I mean, or you can just Google it, but it's Starbucks Reserve, it's in Milan, it's beautiful. I've never been to um, the reserve there. I've only seen pictures of any of the reserve um, shops, but they're really kind of getting into the artisan, you know, kind of bringing back that, that uh, true artistry of coffee, and so that's what they've started now recently. So they're over in Italy, they're getting rejected, no one's feeling it. Um, and then they're telling them, you know, like, yeah, Italians aren't really gonna be able to enjoy, or Americans aren't gonna be able to really enjoy coffee like Italians do. Like, what are you kidding me? Um, so that's where they're at. So <clears throat> they're, um, here they go. So although I realized uh, I, had a prob I had probably been too optimistic about the prospects of a major foreign corporations uh, taking a financial stake in a small and untested American company, I couldn't help feeling deflated. Famous rejection meant 
that I would have to go door to door to individual investors to raise the $1.7 million I needed. I knew how hard that would be. But as always, Italy made it possible, impossible, Italy made it impossible to be unhappy for long. Gordon and I visited nearly 500 espresso bars in Milan and Verona. We took notes, snap photographs, and videotaped baristas in action. We observed local habits, menus, decor, espresso making techniques. We drank a lot of coffee, tasted a lot of Italian wine, and ate some fantastic meals. We sat at outdoor cafes in that intense Italian light and sketched out different design schemes, figuring out how we could replicate an authentic Italian-style coffee bar. By the time we got back to Seattle, we were as high on the idea as when we had left, and I was renewed in my determination to raise as much money as it took to get Il Giornale underway. I had no funds of my own to invest, and I knew nothing of venture capital. It didn't seem right to approach friends or family for money. If the idea was sound, I reasoned experienced investors would want a piece of it. If it was unworkable, they would let me know. They let me know, and then some. I didn't realize until much later the long-term implications of raising equity. Unlike knowledge-based companies like Microsoft, retail businesses are highly capital-intensive. When they expand rapidly with company-owned stores, they require repeated injections of funds for such expenses as build-out costs, inventory, and rents. Each time more money is raised, the founder's stake diminishes. I could never have retained 50% ownership as some software company executives did. I wish today that I could have kept a larger stake in the company, but at the time it seemed I had no choice, and if I had, Starbucks could not have grown large as rapidly and smoothly as it did. After my return from Italy, my, my friend Scott Greenberg and I sat down at my kitchen table and drafted a new private placement plan for Il Giornale. We were both young and fascinated by the possibilities and we complemented each other well. I had the vision and he knew what information and projections were needed to attract private investors and how to outline the opportunities and risk. Since we were introducing something new to Seattle, I figured I had to open at least one store to show people the practical operations and artistic appeal of an Italian style coffee bar. To do so, however, I needed to raise an initial $400,000 in seed capital. After that, I calculated, I would need another $1.25 million to launch at least eight espresso bars and prove the idea would work on an extended scale both in and outside Seattle. From its inception, Il Giornale was intended to be a major enterprise, not just a single store. So if you guys recall when we were um, story timing a few little bits ago, I mean, this is episode 40. We're probably talking like episode, I don't know, 12, 13, when I was reading from one of my books here, the um, book on salon ownership. And I talked about, there's a chapter in here called, let's see, chapter two, starting with the end in mind. So what you heard right there was an example of that. So Howard is thinking, you know, this isn't going to be a one-off. This isn't going to be just a one, you know, one store in Seattle. He's got that vision and he's already thinking about, you know, eight stores. He's thinking about outside of Seattle. He's thinking about, you know, this concept store and then he's thinking about where to next. 
So he's really starting with the end in mind and you can kind of hear, you know, how big his vision is for this, um, for this Starbucks espresso bar um, concept, which is called Il Giornale, which we know now today is Starbucks. Um, but that's where, you know, you got to think about when you're planning something, it's hard sometimes and you have to get into your, into the deep parts of your mind to try to see it. But to think where will this go? How big can this be? Do you want it to be a, a one-off? Do you want it to be a two-off? Do you want it to be a um, a national chain? Do you want it to be a global, you know, phenomenon? And so that's where he starts thinking. You know, when I was starting my company, I was thinking those same things. I'm like, well, and a big part of that was because I was looking out at the landscape of the beauty industry. And at the time, you know, this is, you know, 2008, um, I have the idea, it's formulating, 2009 is when we really kind of launched the company. But at that time, I'm thinking, and I'm watching, and I'm seeing these um, schools pop up, Paul Mitchell schools, right? And I'm a Paul Mitchell graduate, and at the time I was um, a learning leader, I started working at Paul Mitchell, the school Tampa, when they first opened. I had the very first six students that ever attended that school. They were my students, I got to teach them. And there weren't that many, there weren't that many schools. They were just starting to take off. But over 2005, you know, six, seven, eight, the schools went from one location, two, three, four, all of a sudden they're like all over the place. And so I really was looking at that and I'm thinking, well, there's schools all over the place and there's gonna be, that means there's gonna be graduates all over the place. Where are these graduates going to work? And so that's where that kind of the seed was. And I started thinking, well, you know, I'm sure somebody's gonna probably start opening these, you know, salons that focus on graduates and nobody was doing that. So after a couple of years, I decided to, to, to do it. Um, it's one of those things, but you have to, and then I thought, well, we're gonna open. So with that initial seed and, and then watering it with just enthusiasm and excitement, what it turned into was I saw an opportunity to open up, you know, salons not only all over the United States, but even other countries. And so that vision became a, not a national, but a global vision. And I even think we have a, uh, there's a Paul Mitchell School in Russia. So we're gonna have a 1.0 salon in Russia. There's, I mean, there may not be a Paul Mitchell School in some countries right now, uh, but now that we're kind of looking at it, there's probably other schools in other countries that we wanna partner with, but definitely everywhere there's a Paul Mitchell School, um, there should be a 1.0 salon. So that was kind of the vision. And so when Howard's looking at this, he's like, yeah, America, he's thinking Americans. He's not thinking Seattle or just West Coast or just San Francisco. He's thinking America and eventually the globe. We wanna take this experience everywhere. And so his, he's got this, you know, the concept store going and he's figuring out like how much he's gonna need to really make things happen. Um, but he is the underdog, right? He still is new. He's untested, um, and he's you know got to he's got to figure out how far he can make and take this vision. Um, but he's not going to be able to do it alone. Um, so his thing is raising money, and so he gets a couple different people to invest and looking at his financial projections, and you know asking. He's got a, some friends, Ron and Carol, 
Um, and they had no assurance. I mean, he says here they had no assurance that they get their money back at all, let alone any return on it. But once the company went public, remember we talked about that earlier, and the profits and stock price started climbing, they were rewarded. And so Ron and Cheryl, friends that he has, <clears throat> they invest early on. And um, Ron's like, puts I think $100,000 into the company. And it was just really on a, on a, hey, we believe in you. That's really what it came down to. Um, it wasn't really like, this is gonna go somewhere. We think this is gonna be amazing. It was like, hey, we believe in you and here's some money. And so when the company goes public, the shares that they bought for 100,000 grew to be worth more than $10 million. So passion alone, he says, passion alone is no guarantee of remarkable returns. Ron himself will tell you that many of his other investments made based on the same instincts didn't pay back so handsomely. Some entrepreneurs fail because their idea ultimately isn't sound. Others remain short-sighted and unwilling to give up control. Some refuse to bring in more money. Any number of different factors can knock a company off its course in the period between its founder's initial enthusiasm and the eventual returns. But passion is, and will always be, a necessary ingredient. Even the world's best business plans won't produce any return if it is not backed with passion and integrity. The irony of Ron's vote of confidence in Il Giornale is that he is not even a coffee drinker. He invested in me, not in my idea. He's a doctor, not a businessman. But his advice is worth remembering. It appears to me that people who succeed have an incredible drive to do something, observes Ron. They spend the energy to take the gamble. In this world, relatively few people are willing to take a large gamble. If you find someone who is, listen carefully. You may end up helping achieve a dream of amazing proportions. And so that's where the underdog story um, kind of comes into play. And that's where things really start to take off. And Howard goes on to you know, not only um, prove out that first concept, but he goes on to continue raising money and raising money and raising money and building up um, to those funds that he really needed to make things happen. And so I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. So he's raising money. He's building out the store. He's, he's, making, uh, he's making his dream and the Coffee Espresso uh, bar concept really kind of come to life. He's breathing life into it. And Il Giornale is you know, reinventing you know, coffee in the United States at this time. So he's really kind of pioneering this, um, this journey and showing people like not, you know, drinking cheap coffee. That's not it. There's another way to drink coffee. You can have great espresso. You can have a coffee experience. You can, um, the romance and creating that atmosphere around it um, with the stores that he has. Um, that's really where he's going. So <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about the mission. And this is really the foundation that sets him up for explosive growth and to be able to, um, to keep raising uh, money and raising you know experience and expectation and raising value in the company so the mission as we get into the uh, mission statement I'm going to read that to you guys so you can kind of see where when they first started what their um, initial you know kind of uh, plan was and you can see how it still rings true today so this is Starbucks mission statement Establish Starbucks as the premier purveyor of the finest coffee in the world 
while maintaining our uncompromising principles as we grow. The following six guiding principles will help us measure the appropriateness of our decisions. The first one here, provide a great work environment and treat each other with respect and dignity. The second one, embrace diversity as an essential component in the way we do business. Number three, apply the highest standards of excellence to the purchasing, roasting, and fresh delivery of our coffee. Number four, develop enthusiastically satisfied customers all of the time. Number five, contribute positively to our communities and our environment. And number six, recognize that profitability is essential to our future success. Um, the thing that I really like about that as I was reading through that, you know, the first time I, I went through this book was he didn't, you know, he's still a company, right? You're still a company, a for-profit company. You need to be profitable in order to survive. So he didn't like, it wasn't all like, oh, just we want to be just so amazing and love, love, love. Yes, there is a lot of that in there. Being, a, a, you know, members of their communities, contributing positively to the environment, um, developing, you know, happy customers, right? Diversity is in there. Having a great work environment, respect, dignity. But at the end there, recognize that profitability is essential to our future success. So yes, we're going to do all of those things that are great things to do and be as a human, as a company, but we also need to be profitable or else we're not going to be around anymore, right? You can't just, you know, do great, great, great as a company. Now you could do if you're running a nonprofit, but if you're running a profit for profit company, then you got to remember that there has to be in some part of your plan we need to make money and we need to be profitable so we can continue to do all of those other things that are amazing and, you know, nice to do. Um, so those are things like sometimes, you know, owners, it's like you, know, you forget about that and it can't. Now, the order of it, if you put the profit first, then you'll forget about all the other things and you'll, it'll be just about money. And like in our company, our goals, our company goals, we have. You know, number one, we have, you know, have fun. And number two, we have make money. So we never want to get those reversed. Um, we have also a goal in our company to be positive contributing members to our community, um, to be a model for other salons in our community to follow. Um, so, you know, we encourage people to look, hey, look at what we're doing and copy it. Uh, we want to be able to give back. We want to be able to create happy guests every single time, every visit. So a lot of things are similar and there's some comparisons in there. Um, but membering that as a for-profit company, there needs to be a plan to make money because if you're a for-profit company, if you know if you don't ever make any money, uh, then you can only. It's kind of like your body, right? How long can you live without oxygen? How long can you you know live without blood? How long can you live without um, without food? You know, not very long. So you have to have that in your plan somewhere. Um, but I like that they had it in there. Um, but it was it wasn't the first thing. It was the last thing um, that he said. So going into the story, we're fast forwarding a little bit through here. Um, that's kind of where things started to get, you know, he got set up. And we're going to talk about this strong foundation, you know, and this will be key. Um, and the platform, so you really kind of understand like a platform that Starbucks is built on. So this part, it says a hundred story building first needs a strong foundation. And here's a quote for, from James Collins and Jerry Porras, they wrote a book called Built to Last. And it says, the builders of visionary companies 
Concentrate primarily on building an organization, building a ticking clock, rather than on hitting a market just right with a visionary product idea. Sometimes losing money is healthy. Now, there's a novel thought. Losing money is scary. That I know from experience. It's a danger sign of most businesses, especially mature established ones. But for a young entrepreneurial company full of full of promise, losing money could be a healthy sign that it's investing ahead of the growth curve. If you aspire to fast growth, you need to create an infrastructure for the larger enterprise you are planning to create. You can't build a 100-story skyscraper on a foundation designed for a two-story house. The importance of investors with strong stomachs. Starbucks was profitable until I took over. It didn't take long for me to realize that we couldn't both sustain that level of earnings and build the foundation we needed for fast growth. I predicted that we would lose money for three years. In fact, that's precisely what we did. In 1987, we lost $330,000. The next year losses more than doubled to $764,000. The third year, we lost $1.2 million. It wasn't until 1990 that we finally turned a profit. Now, so think about this, right? So he's understanding long-term where we're going. And that's where a big thing, and I know there's, you know, Amazon, Jeff Bezos is really famous for this. Like he has this letter that he wrote in 1997 when they first were going um, public and he laid it out. He's like, listen, if you're investing in this company, we're going to lose money for a while because we're building something for the future. We're not building a get rich quick, you know, fly by night operation here. We're building something um, that's going to be around for he's, you know, looking at, you know, 100 years plus. And so in order to do that, you're going to have to take some hits up front. So that's where that strong stomach comes in. Um, he's not looking at it like, you know, a, a negative thing, even though it is. Yeah, losses are not great, right? And I've seen that and you're like, oh, yeah, like what's going on here? I'm, I'm losing money. But being able to know that we're going to lose money initially because we're going to be investing in growth. We're going to take the little money that we're making, that little bit you know, that we have coming in, and we're going to pour it back into growing the company. We're going to pour it back into um, building, going from one store to two store to three store to four store to five store. You know, and that's what he did. I mean, if you think about the, the rise, you know, as time went on, this is kind of jumping, jumping back a second. So as time went on and we reached each goal, our self-confidence grew. We accelerated the pace of store openings, aiming to outdo ourselves each year. On a base of 11 stores, we opened 15 new stores in 1988. For the following year, we figured we could open 20 more. When we realized our targets weren't as hard to hit as they looked, we challenged ourselves to harder ones. We started opening more stores annually than in the original plan. 30 in 1990, 32 stores in 91, 53 stores in 92 all company owned. Each time we achieved a big dream, we were already planning for a bigger one. You know, and so you're not going to grow like that uh, just on on no risk. On You know, as the saying goes, no risk, no reward. You know, so that's one of the things. And he's looking at it 
like we're going to keep growing this thing and building and building and building. Um, we're going to take some risk. We're going to take some hits. We're going to lose some money, um, but we're going to keep on um, building uh, nonstop. And that's how we're going to be able to take this idea that, you know, this little coffee bar, this little espresso bar, um, whatever you want to call it, Giornale, um, which he had. And, and then um, Giornale becoming, um, coming back to Starbucks. Um, so with, with those two names, right, and of course they kept the Starbucks name because, you know, Giornale, right, and the investors of Starbucks are invested in it and they know like, they kind of, I think they knew. I think they probably knew that E. Giornale was going to be successful. And E. Giornale eventually purchases Starbucks and then they just keep the Starbucks name. Um, it, had, it had the weight. It was, I mean, the original vision and the passion. Um, and that's really how they took off. So he lets the investors know, like, people, here's what's going on. We're going to lose some money. Um, be ready. Because if you want to open stores and we're going to continue to open stores... We need a strong foundation, but we also you need to have a stomach to know in these early years that's that's what's going to be happening. Um, and so, a couple couple little bits here from this foundation. So, that was a nerve wracking period for all of us. This is when they were losing a bunch of money in the early '90s, filled with many white knuckle days. Although we knew we were investing in the future and had accepted the fact that we wouldn't be profitable, I was often filled with doubts. One night in 1988, Ron Lawrence. Then Starbucks controller knocked at the door of my house at 11 p.m. Shirley and our son were already asleep upstairs, and when I led Ron into the kitchen, I saw that his face was ashen. He had just calculated our monthly numbers, and we had lost four times more than we had budgeted for. A board meeting was scheduled for the following week, and we sat at the table with the figures spread before us. I was appalled. I can't go to the board with these numbers, I said. This is unbelievable. How did this happen? Ron explained that it was an unusual circumstance in which everything hit the P&L at once. It was unlikely to happen again. Still, I didn't sleep well that night, trying to plan how I could explain the huge shortfall to the directors. The board meeting was as tense as I had expected it would be. Things aren't working, one of the directors said after hearing my report. We will have to change strategy. We had only about 20 stores at that time. And some directors thought my plans were far too ambitious. I began to imagine conversations among board members before and after those meetings in which directors complain, we've got to get this guy out of here. Howard doesn't know what he's doing. How much of our money are we going to let him lose before we pull the plug? The pressure was on and I had to justify those losses. I had to prove that they are necessary for my investment strategy and not just money poured down the drain. Although I was quaking inside, I had to summon every ounce of my conviction to convince them. Look, I told the board, keeping my voice as steady as possible. We're going to keep losing money until we can do three things. We have to attract a management team well beyond our expansion needs. We have to build a world-class roasting facility and we need a computer information system sophisticated enough to keep track of sales in hundreds and hundreds of stores. Although it took various forms in the years to come, that message became like a mantra repeated every quarter. We had to invest ahead of the growth curve. Fortunately, the board and investor group showed remarkable patience in supporting me and my plans. If Starbucks hadn't turned a profit in 1990, they would have 
good reason to kick me out. Looking back now, I realize how our strategy proved how our strategy proved to be. How sound our strategy proved to be. In those early years, 1987 to 1989, we laid a solid base for rapid national expansion by hiring key managers and by investing early in facilities we would soon need, far sooner than we realized. It was expensive, but without it, we would have never been able to accelerate our growth year after year without stopping to catch our breath. And that, my friends, is the solid foundation laid. Um, that's the origin story that built that foundation. Um, and we kind of all know what happened um, after that, you know, and, and they had that impasse. Really, he said it in that meeting. They're sitting there, you know, they got 20 stores. They're losing a ton of money. And he's like hundreds and hundreds of stores. And that's the kind of vision that he had. And the company has taken off and not done just hundreds and hundreds of stores. Um, they did thousands and thousands and thousands of stores. And they went on later in the 90s to go public, become a publicly traded company. And over the last you know 20 uh, plus years have been uh, publicly traded. And there's been some shakeups. There's been plenty of ups and downs. There's been times where... You know, Howard left the company and then he came back because the company was upside down. It was about to, he thought, go out of business. And he was sitting on the sidelines watching like, how could this happen? This company, um, you know, that I love so much and, and gave so much to is going to go away. He's like, no way, not on my watch. So, and he had retired. So he came out of retirement to turn the company around. And he wrote another book about it. Definitely check it out. It's called Onward. Um, and it's it's um, it's kind of like that that second coming of Starbucks story, and that happened to be the the time where he came back and kind of um, reconnected everybody with why we exist and the passion and the love for coffee. I remember I was working in uh, Paul Mitchell the school in Tampa uh, at the original location, and one day you know a couple of students came in and were like, "Oh my God, like Starbucks closed!" And I'm like, "What? What do you mean Starbucks closed?" And they hadn't closed, like went out of business. They just closed to retrain as a company. They closed thousands of stores across the globe. Everybody, they closed them all down for like so many hours to retrain how to make the perfect espresso, how to make the perfect cup of coffee. Let's get back to basics. Let's not forget why we're here. Let's not forget why we exist. And it was a bold move. And they lost, I mean, I'm sure millions of dollars in those hours. But that's one of the things that he did uh, when he came back to reignite the company and to get them passionate about um, coffee and building a, a great experience again. Um, so that's that's the foundation and that's where we're going to finish up with our Starbucks story. And the story continues. It's still being written today. I think they have something like you know, 40,000, 50,000 um, locations around the world. You can find them in almost every major country. Um, you can find them in definitely every major city multiple times in malls. And you know some malls have two or three Starbucks stores in them. Um, but their story is still being written. Um, so hopefully throughout this week, you guys got inspired by the Starbucks story. Uh, Pour Your Heart Into It is the book. Howard Schultz is the man uh, that wrote it and was the chairman and CEO. Um, he has retired again. Um, so he is not the CEO anymore. Uh, but I mean, he still loves the the company and the brand, and you could you could see where you know starting from really nothing 
and taking a chance on himself, taking a chance on his idea, he was able to build something that was just uh, phenomenal, just unbelievable. Um, so hopefully that inspires you guys to do something great. Uh, thanks for hanging out with me this morning. Today's Friday, going into the weekend. Uh, we'll be back Monday morning. And we're going to be doing another company. I don't know which company we're going to do next. I've got, um, I'm looking at this great, you know, stack of books from my library on all these amazing companies. It's hard to pick one. So I'll probably do another poll. Uh, maybe I'll kind of narrow it down the two and throw out another poll to see what you guys think. Uh, I'm just looking at all these. But we'll be back uh, Monday morning for another edition of Storytime. So tell a friend. Um, tell a, tell a, someone, bring someone with you. Don't show up alone. Um, come hang out with me on the other social media channels. Uh, message me on Instagram. Let me know what you think. Um, share this. And for all the YFYI episodes, because this goes on the YFYI podcast, go to yfyipodcast.com. You can listen to this episode. It'll be coming out later today. And the other almost 200 episodes that also are on the podcast. So thanks again for tuning in and uh, thanks for being here for Storytime. Hope you guys enjoyed learning a little bit about Starbucks, the great company um, as we studied it. And I look forward to catching you Monday back again for Storytime. Thanks for listening, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey guys, Sunny D here again. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that episode and hopefully you got inspired by just the courage, the persistence, the commitment to the vision and the focus that Howard Schultz, the former chairman, actually he may be the current chairman, but definitely former CEO of Starbucks, uh, the, the amount of courage that he displayed and the commitment to that vision and as they say, you know, the rest is history. You know, at that point uh, where we left off, you know, that's where the company really started to harness that explosive growth uh, dynamic. They ended up going public. They ended up going from the state to the country to the world. And their story is going to continue to be written. I'm looking forward to even coming back in the future and maybe doing a, um, an updated and current study of the current economy um, you know with coronavirus the current economy has changed every business so i'm interested to see how starbucks adapts and changes to the new environment and the new world uh, that we're living in and and i want to see the rest of their story and i'll continue to be a fan and i'm a supporter i'm a customer i'm a consumer hopefully you guys got inspired if you're not a starbucks lover um, you definitely gotta love a great story and maybe you'll become one who knows but if you do go um, over to one of the Starbucks stores. Tell them Sunny sent you. I don't think that means anything. I don't think you're going to get any kind of discount, but I think it'll still be fun. So hopefully you guys enjoyed story time. Uh, we'll be back live Monday morning. We're going to pick another company to study. We'll see which one it is over the weekend. I'll get some feedback from you guys and see uh, which company we should focus on next. So excited to continue the journey of story time. Excited to um, continue the study of some of these great brands and find out just how they did it. So thanks for tuning in to the YFY podcast. And remember, this is the podcast where you come to learn how to build your business right once or else you will be doomed to have to build it again. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon.